Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, or if you uh, don't have one with you, there should be uh, some at the end of the pew aisles nearby you. We are continuing to work through a series in the book of Judges, and we'll look today at uh, Judges uh, 10 and 12, 10 through 12, but focusing uh, most specifically on Judges chapter 11. I'll give you a little bit of info on the beginning of 10. We learn about two judges, Tola and Jair. Uh, we see in the chapter 12, following the verses we'll focus in on today, Isban, Elon, and Abdon. Say that fast three times. Several other judges. So there's five other judges kind of in the mix here. Uh, but we're going to focus in on Jephthah, and we do so recognizing the message in chapter 10 also of Judges, where we're reminded of this cycle that we've already, you know, talked about uh, several times. We even had a little illustration, I think, uh, the first couple of weeks in the back of your, your worship guide where there's some sermon notes section uh, of this cycle that God's people get uh, delivered, get brought into the promised land. They're God's people under, in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And they're enjoying that until they have this habit, which maybe sounds familiar to all of us, of wandering away. Turning away to other things and failing to really worship God and oftentimes worshiping the gods of the very uh, enemies that are around them, the military and physical and political enemies around them. And, and then God often just, you know, takes a step back, really, and lets those enemies come in, give, give them great difficulty. The people all of a sudden at some point realize, oh, goodness, we have we have really botched it. Lord, help us come rescue us. And sometimes, as we've seen, it's uh, it's just a cry of uh, remorse. They're just sorry that bad things are happening to them. Other times, they're genuinely repentant. They acknowledge that really they've offended God and need his help. But regardless, God often sends a redeemer, a rescuer, what the book calls a judge, somebody to, to help them, to deliver them. And so we've seen this. It's kind of same song, second verse, chapter 10, just reminds us, hey, this is still going on. The people of God are going through this ongoing cycle again. And then we come to chapter 11, and we're going to read some verses from there in a moment. We come to uh, Jephthah, who is interesting because he, he gets almost as much page space in the book of Judges as the big three. Deborah, Gideon, and Samson, who we've probably heard of, but Jephthah, probably not quite as common a household name for us. And we see again in Jephthah a couple of key themes. One is just the frailty of even the deliverers that God sends. They're merely human beings and, and they're sinful human beings. And so even though they're sent to do awesome things, they are often very frail. In particular with Jephthah, like Gideon, we see some significant character flaws and then a key crucial decision point that Jephthah makes with his words and what he says that costs him dearly. And so we're going to see not only what happens with Jephthah and lessons to be learned from that, but really a broad lesson, too, about the power of our words, the power of the things we say and what they can mean for our lives. So I invite you to read along uh, with me as I read aloud. Judges chapter 11, we'll be looking at just verses 1 through 11, and then we'll jump down to the end of this uh, chapter. Chapter. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. 
but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, come and, and be our leader that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that's why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if, I bring, if you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be a witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Mizpah. Jump down with me. To verse 29, we'll come back during the sermon and talk a little bit about those in-between verses. And really, verse 30 is probably fine for us to jump in with. Basically, uh, we've got Jephthah going out and getting a victory against the Ammonites. It says in verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out, from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. The Lord gave them into his hands and he struck them, struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel Karamim with great with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came home to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child, because beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. And you become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, my father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. She means weep for the fact that she will not be married and potentially have the chance to have children. I and my companions. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed and she and her companions and she wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father and he did with her according to his vow that he had made. 
Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask that you would take your word and teach us uh, from it today. Uh, Powerful things that would be life transforming for us and that would help us to see more of you and your glory and your goodness. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, what we say and how we say it can have significant impact, both for good and for ill, both short term and for long term. We've probably all seen that places in our lives. When Patience and I were in just our early years of marriage, we lived in what uh, her father affectionately called the hood in St. Louis. And uh, we had gotten married midway through college. Patience worked as a nanny. I waited tables to squeak out the income for our our little one-bedroom apartment, which indeed was in an interesting part of town. Let's call it that. And in order for Patience to get, and I may have shared this story in past settings, in order for Patience to get to the campus that she attended, she had to go about a mile and a quarter down a main road that went even further into an interesting part of St. Louis. She had to get on the train at that station, and the Metrolink would take her up to campus. And we had a fairly developed uh, routine. We had one automobile, and so I would have the car for the different places I needed to get to. And then if I could, I would swing by and, and pick her up at the stop. And then if, if not, sometimes she would take a, a bus that was, would take her from that quarter mile and a quarter down the road on closer to our neighborhood. We had planned, I think, for me to pick her up uh, that evening at the uh, Metrolink station. And and it was a particular uh, special night for me to get her because it was her birthday. And one of the early birthdays may have been the first birthday that she celebrated as as we were a married couple or the second one. And and I I had thought was doing good. I I had listened a few weeks ahead of time to to something she had said. And she had mentioned a Baskin-Robbins ice cream cake. Baskin Robbins ice cream cake, logged it in, made sure to order it ahead of time. I thought it was doing real well. Got that ice cream cake, swung by to the Metrolink station that evening, about 745, the normal time that I would pick her up, pulled up in behind one of those uh, buses I mentioned earlier that was sitting right in front of me, and, and I waited. And I waited. And one Metrolink train came through and everybody unloaded. Another Metrolink train came through another 10 minutes later, now getting closer to 8 o'clock. Maybe another one comes through. Finally, I get a little bit concerned because I don't see her. She's not coming off of there. So I get up and I actually go walk on down to the platform and left my car there for a minute. And and I asked, now you all know Patience with her red hair, and it was even longer red hair at at that time. And so she's a noticeable uh, person, especially in that eclectic environment of the Metrolink station. And so I asked the platform supervisor, have you seen her? Have you seen a gal matching this description? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, she she got off of the train. Well, then I'm even a little bit more concerned. Where where is she? What has happened to her starts to rotate through my mind. You know how those things go. And, and, And so I got in my car and drove on that mile and a quarter back to where our apartment was. Drove in. I could immediately see there were no lights on because you could see it from the street. 
But I went ahead, parked my car, walked up in there, checked the door, checked through the place to make sure she wasn't there somewhere. She was nowhere to be found. Now, if uh, you have any sort of protective instinct in your mindset, in your life, you can feel what I was feeling already. Made my way back to the Metrolink station, driving along that same route, kind of watching, see, was she walking along the way there? We have a confusion or so forth. Uh, all the time, my Baskin-Robbins cake back in the trunk, secure. Get back to the Metrolink station. Pull back in, uh, again, right behind a bus that was sitting there. Get out. Look around again for another 10 minutes. Another couple trains had come through. Ask the guy. No, no sign. Now I'm in a state of almost uh, panic, you can imagine. Now, this is before youngsters here, before a little thing called cellular phones. Okay? This was in the 90s. She had no way to communicate with one another. So I make my way back to the apartment. As I pull in there, lights are on up inside. Now, what should have transpired in my heart and mind was just joy, elation. Somehow, I can't even explain it to this day. Maybe you've been there. Uh, concern, deep concern for my wife and her well-being turned into kind of overload of energy and maybe a little bit of angst. And so I made my way, Baskin Robbins, happy birthday cake, October 10th, in my hand, up to our little apartment door, open the door, Patience is standing there and says, hello. And I say, where have you been? And the way where have you been comes out of my mouth is more like a parent reprimanding their child for where they've been than an expression of concern and love. The tears begin to flow down Patience's face. The Baskin-Robbins cake remained unenjoyed for that evening, I can say. And uh, if Jephthah had made a vow and comments about who was coming out of his residence and what might happen to that individual, I should have been pretty concerned about my well-being going in the door to my residence at that point. Words can really affect things, can't they? What we say, how we say it can really affect things. They can affect relationships here. And we also see scripturally that words are really important for our relationship with God. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. And so what I want us to look at today, I hope we can do all this, is, is overarching what do words have to do with our relationship with, with God. What does Jephthah teach us about words and his understanding of salvation, how does that relate to us? And then maybe we can, out of that as well, just get some practical reminders that we ought to think about what we say before we say it, right? That's the probably easiest application of these verses. It's interesting, words are directly involved in our salvation. Think about one of probably the most familiar verses about coming to salvation, uh, conversion, coming to Christ. Romans chapter 10 where it says, you don't need to turn, turn there, it says that we are to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. Have you ever thought about that? There is a belief component, so something inside of us that needs to embrace and receive who Jesus is, that he's our righteousness, he's our salvation. That's key and crucial to our coming to Christ. 
But it also says that we speak. We're called upon to say in some regard. Now, of course, if we've got the communicants joining or new members joining our church or whatnot, they're going to come up front and they're going to say to the church, basically, hey, this is what we believe. We confess it verbally. But what we say out loud is really tied to our salvation. We can't be saved without saying something aloud about our trust in Jesus so with that in mind and that kind of background, let, let's now let's dig into Jephthah. We'll have to go through a little bit of, of the story about him and, and we'll come out on the other side. I think with some really helpful things for us. Take a look back with me at this beginning of chapter 11 in Judges. And what we're going to see is a little background on Jephthah and actually how, like the other judges, he is a foreshadowing of Christ, a foreshadowing of the ultimate redeemer who would come. We look in the uh, first verse, it tells us his background coming from a prostitute. Now, of course, the Savior's background is is different from that, but both suspect birth origins. Let's say that. Okay, both of them coming from suspect birth origins. Then we see what the treatment of his own family is. How do they respond to him? They say, get out of here. We don't want to have you around. And they don't change their opinion until what? Until they got a need. Now, this guy, apparently, Jephthah's been roaming around. Because he got kicked out, he's got these odd band of folks that he's roaming around with. He must have developed some kind of ability to fight. And they figured, hey, we'll get you back in here. But look at what they even say to him in verse 6 of chapter 11. They said to him, come and be our leader. And then Jephthah says to, to them, you know, legitimate question. I thought you hated me. Oh, you didn't like me or want me around. And then listen to their response to him. They don't say, oh, man, we are really sorry. We, we are so, we messed up by kicking you out. And we were bad people and we ought to, we should have loved you more. We should have had you come back. No, their answer to him is, that's why we've called you back now. Because we think you can fight for us. You can do something for us. We don't, we're not saying we made a mistake or that we're apologizing. We just, we want you back here to fight for us. Now, he cuts a deal with them, obviously, about being their leader. But, boy, two or three parallels there to who Christ is and, and, and foreshadowing to who Christ is. One, those sort of suspect, if you will, birth origin I mentioned a minute ago. But then also this fact that he's just despised. Jephthah's just disliked by his own people. It reminds me of Isaiah 52 and verses I know I've certainly read before from up here, but but uh, powerful verses for us. This prophecy about Christ written more than 700 years before he came. And it says about him, his appearance, this is verse 14 of Isaiah 52. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And then it goes on down in verse two. He says he's like a root out of dry ground. Nothing very impressive about his appearance. He was despised and rejected. He had no majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty. And then listen to this. He was he was one from whom men hide their faces, but surely he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So we see this picture of this rejected one. John chapter one says something similar. You don't need to turn there, but it tells us that Jesus was in the beginning and he was the word and all this glorious description. And then verse nine of John one, 
the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, and they did not receive him. It's a rejected one. A rejected one. And then think about Christ as well. Uh, Certainly not a bad thing that we want Jesus for what he does for us. Right? He secures salvation for us. He wins our battle against sin and death for us. But I think if we've begun to walk in the gospel a little bit, one of the things we hopefully are realizing is that we ought to love Jesus just for who he is. Just because he's God's son, just because he's the word and the beginning was the word. But I love him for his identity. You see, with Jephthah, the people just want him for what he can do for them, not for who he is. Second thing we see in our verses, and if you're not already following along in the sermon notes uh, section at the end of your worship guide, you can if you would like to is the positive side. So we're shifting gears now. The positive side of Jephthah's use of words. He's an interesting guy. If you look with me, and we won't go through all of it, but at verses 12 uh, down through 28 in chapter 11 of Judges, we see four things I'll highlight there. Jephthah's going, and he's, he's being a diplomat. He's engaging with the Ammonites and trying to make a case for why the Israelites have a claim, long-term claim on this piece of property that they're arguing over. Sound like a familiar political reality, geopolitical reality? There's a piece of property. They're arguing. Both the armies are gathering. They're potentially going to fight over who really owns that land, who it's been with. And it's just interesting. We don't need to go into all the dynamics of that other than what's interesting to me is how skilled Jephthah is. With his words, he tells them there in verses 15 through 22, hey, the the Israelites won this land fair and square. So, number one, we we got dibs on it for that. Verses 23 and 24, he says, you know, you're criticizing us as Israel because we say God gave us this land. But he says, if you had the land, you'd say your gods gave you the land, too. So, you know, whoop de doo we're both saying the same thing. He points out then in verses 25 through 27, Moab's up to the north and Moab's not making a big fuss about this land. And then lastly, he says, hey, by the way, we've had it for 300 years. We've had control over this area. So why are you just now coming and trying to fight us over it? Main thing I want us to see is that he appears to be a guy who has great skill with using his words to speak and to deal with all sorts of complicated situations. Things change, as you saw when I read these last verses of chapter 11, when he makes what my Bible calls Jephthah's tragic vow. And indeed it is, isn't it? It's interesting, some folks in looking at verse 29 and following have said, well, he probably expected maybe an animal to come out of his house. And that's why he made the vow. That that would be kind of nice to us, I think. I think we would like for that to be the the case. Um, It doesn't really work, though. People would not, in this time, have kept animals, livestock, in their house any more than a farmer today would keep livestock in their house for obvious reasons of what animals do throughout the day. 
The word here as well that Jephthah uses for what would come out of the house. The, I won't go into the linguistics, but it doesn't line up. It doesn't fit with an animal, the word for animal. Uh, lastly, if he really was simply trying to say, if his vow had been about an animal, surely he wouldn't feel like he had to then offer a human sacrifice when his daughter came out through the front door, right? So what we conclude then is the surprising but actually very informative truth that Jephthah's specific intention was maybe not for his daughter. He didn't want his daughter to come through the door. We can see that. But that some human being, a servant, another family member who would come through that door would be offered up. And that's interesting because he knows Deuteronomy 12, 31 in God's word, God's word delivered to his people. And it says there's no human sacrifice that's not to be done. So what is going on in Jephthah's mind? Why is this happening for him? I think this is what's happening. Jephthah is fighting for God's people, but Jephthah is still operating on the mindset of the people around him and their religion that in some cases did involve that human sacrifice. And Jephthah's thinking that way because he knows there's a God out there. He obviously has some belief in God. But the way he thinks God works is that Jephthah's got to pay him off, got to buy him off some way in order to get God to show favor and do what he wants God to do. That's the way it's got to happen. And that's the way you interact with God. And therefore, I've made this vow. Okay, so it's interesting that he makes the vow, isn't it? And then even more interesting, proof positive, that he keeps the vow. Not only that he keeps the vow, but who tells him that he should keep the vow? His own daughter says yes, because she's raised in his household. She's operating under the same spiritual mindset that the way that I, I get God to be in my favor and love me is I've got to do this thing for God. I've got to offer this sacrifice to get that to happen. And it's backwards, even though it seems like a, a huge sort of spiritual commitment that he would offer this sacrifice of his daughter. In fact, it's upside down, just as we often think that if I do this religious thing, if I make this religious commitment or participate in this religious ritual or whatever, something that involves some energy or effort from me or I give this uh, money or resources to the church that uh, that somehow then God's got to love me back. That's all wrong. God's love comes to us because he chooses to show it because he's gracious. And that's actually all through the book of Judges. Hey, the people keep messing up and God chooses to show his love graciously, kindly, even when they don't repent in the right way. He does it. I think um, Jephthah is missing what Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through ten says, which is just that we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one may boast. It's by God's grace. He's also missing, even if you may say, well, wait a minute. The Old Testament people of God sacrificed animals. So isn't it kind of the same thing? It doesn't make sense that he would get. No, the, the animal sacrifice, as we read the book of Hebrews, was all meant to 
point forward to Christ was meant to point to the fact that we need some outside rescuer, that we can't secure our salvation ourselves. It's got to come from someone else. And so Jephthah's vow and its horrible consequences ought to be for us a reminder and kind of a challenge today to evaluate those places in our lives where we feel like uh, not that we get what we have in our life because God chooses to show it and he's gracious and loving, but that we've got to do certain things. We've got to twist God's arm. We've got to barter with him to get what we think we want or need spiritually. And how actually, although that might produce uh, some kind of religious action or some kind of outwardly uh, bold sacrifice like this, it's actually upside down. It's actually backwards in terms of the gospel. A couple other things that we can see by way of application. One, if you'll turn with me and we'll conclude with just a couple of thoughts from uh, from this passage, James Chapter 3, James is all the way at the back of your Bible after the book of Hebrews. And so really coming around, we've, we've looked at the big themes here, how Jephthah actually is a foreshadowing of the Savior. We looked at the contrast between his great skill with his words and then the foolishness and how his words actually reflect his misunderstanding of salvation in the gospel. Now we're going to kind of come all the way back around and say, you know what? Okay, we get those ideas and those concepts, but also there's just a practical application here that, man, we need to be careful what we say and how we say it. James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder whenever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things should not be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the many ways that uh, you challenge us and teach us through the message of the life of Jephthah. And Lord, we ask that you would not only allow us to uh, take the very practical step of being reminded just to be careful with uh, what we say. Our, our words have great power for positive good when we speak encouragement and speak love and speak grace. But they can also just bring death and bring pain. So we ask, Lord, that you would 
equip us in that way. Well, Father, we ask you as well to uh, work into our minds and hearts the reality of our salvation by grace through faith alone. And Lord, uh, help us not to think that even the good and sacrificial things that we do in a spiritual sense, that they somehow twist your arm or put you in our debt and require you to do certain things for us. Lord, you choose to love us. You choose to send a Savior for us. You choose to rescue us. And it's from your free hand and your free grace, and we simply receive it. Oh, Lord, help us not to get that one mixed up. And the places where it is mixed up, help us to get uh, back in line with the understanding of your grace and mercy to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.